This is Philosophy in Color, a podcast showcasing graduate students and junior faculty members' research from underrepresented groups in philosophy. Any views, opinions, or claims represented on this podcast by the podcast, its host, or speakers are personal and are for informational purposes only. These views, opinions, or claims represented on this podcast do not represent people, institutions, or organizations that the podcast, its host, and speakers may or may not be affiliated with in any professional or personal capacity. The views of the speaker or speakers may not reflect the views of the host, and the views of the host may not reflect the views of the speaker or speakers. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Spencer, a survivor, scholar, and activist who was a doctoral candidate at Michigan State University, an incoming assistant professor at the University of Connecticut. She works in Black feminism, structural epistemology, and social and political philosophy. We sat down with Spencer to talk about surviving Jane Code, Black feminist epistemological concerns for Me Too bots. As a content warning, this episode does contain general discussions about sexual harassment, sexual violence, the myth of the ideal survivor, and criminalization of survivors. If these topics are triggering, please turn off this episode and tune in next time. Within today's world, technology and computational tools are becoming more ingrained within the fabric of our societies. This integration is often thought to improve the human condition. Think automation of labor for faster productivity, social media platforms to stay better connected better than ever, or even self-driving cars. Now imagine if we could design an AI or computational algorithm that can monitor online sexual harassment or report on sexual harassment. An AI designed to monitor, track, and report on sexual harassment are termed MeTooBots. On the face of it, MeTooBots appear to be a good integration of technology to combat sexual harassment and aid in bringing sexual harassers to justice. Yet Spencer would like us to question our assumptions about such technology and understand how these MeTooBots are designed and how these MeTooBots designs impact the type of knowledge they produce. In doing this, we are then equipped to ask the question, is using MeTooBots a good idea and when, given the social and political dimensions we live in? So first, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this piece. And I also want to shout out Tempest Henning out at Vanderbilt, who invited me to write this, to write a piece for the Southwest Philosophy Review. And that it was at that time that I decided, well, here's an opportunity to really jot down and work through some of my ideas about Me Too bots and artificial intelligence as a site of knowledge production in relationship to sexual violence. And so, yeah, so shout out to Tempest for the invitation to do this. And I know there are going to be a bunch of other really amazing papers in, in this particular issue from Andrea Warmack, paper from Tempest Henning, Atifa Green. And so I just want to acknowledge that. So first started thinking about Me Too bots and, and AI, I was really curious about this sort of endeavor to use technology to address these long-standing issues of sexual violence. And so what I found was that after the viral hashtag Me Too, there were a number of developers who got excited about what their role could be in combating sexual violence. And so I think that in and of itself is really exciting, but I was concerned about what this technology might mean for survivors, because very often when there is um, sort of renewed interest in sexual violence, there's also renewed interest in turning to the state and policing to solve sexual violence. And so sure enough, <laughs> I started reading up on, on these Me Too bots, and I found that many of, of them are sort of working through 
an assumption that if we had better policing technologies to identify harassers on Twitter or to find harassing messages in company emails or documents, then this would be sort of a net benefit for all survivors. And as a Black feminist epistemologist, I think in particular, I was fascinated by this approach to Me Too bots because the problem isn't that we don't know that harassment is happening. It's not that we don't know who's harassing who online. We, you know, it's like survivors speak out and report on this all the time. And so I, you know, sort of come to the work from that angle of being like, well, what does it mean um, not only to create more policing technologies to combat sexual violence, but also to do so with a sort of assumption that the problem is that we just don't know, <laughs> right, where harassment is happening, how frequently it's happening, and who's doing the harassing. Because indeed, if you talk to survivors or like take them seriously as, as knowers and as experts of their own experiences, you already have that information. And so that's sort of where I, I enter the conversation. So we know what a MeToo bot is and its function. What about the data that goes into it? How can data accurately capture sexual harassment online? Is that even a real possibility? And what are the implications on the survivors and their testimony and agency in the process of datatizing their harassment? So I think that's an interesting question, and it's certainly something I'm working through. And I understand your question to basically be like, how representative can data be of, of sexual violence? Because we do know that there's this long sort of standing history of under-reporting um, of sexual violence or mischaracterization of sexual violence. So a survivor comes forward with their story to someone in authority, and some Someone, you know, sort of brushes it off as not actually sexual harassment. It's just interpersonal conflict on, on the job or, you know, all these other things, which would lead us to say that like, well, then already we have some issues in data, given that we have just in some ways limited data. And I think the other piece of that is a lot of data on sexual harassment and sexual violence more broadly is not disaggregated by race and gender at the same time. So sometimes we'll see statistics that'll say, you know, let's 60% of women are harassed in the tech industry or something. And this is a made up number, right? But when we actually go in to look at the data and say, well, how many of those women are Black women and how many of those women are Latina? There's also this issue of not only having very limited data, but limited tools to actually disaggregate and interpret the data that we have available. And so I do think there's something to be said about what role can AI play in interpreting a ton of data on sexual harassment and then sort of sending it back out, producing data for companies or governmental agencies to analyze and interpret sort of like rates of sexual harassment in a particular space. And so that's something that I'm really very curious about for a couple of reasons. One of the things that I think Me Too bots, at least for, you know, the ones that you can get kind of more public information about, because a lot of them, you know, are beta testing and really early on, are in many ways working with companies to sort of assess their liability. And so I have this question around, well, what are we actually going to do with the data <laughs> that's collected? 
right? What transparency measures will be in place for companies that are going to have access to survivors' testimonies, are going to have access to um, red flags in their company emails or what have you, um, to ensure that something's actually done to support survivors, but also in what ways can the data be used to empower survivors to still have a role in what's done? So it's not that survivors' testimonies are sort of analyzed and personally, and then they never get a say in what happens afterwards or you know, sort of chat with a Me Too bot and then that's sort of it. They don't have, you know, sort of agency over what's done later in the process. So I think one of my main concerns right now is how the collected data might be used in ways that may not actually be empowering for survivors if there isn't a transparent feedback loop that empowers survivors to still have agency over the process of handling the, the claims. I hadn't thought through that implication, the issue about removing agency and potentially justice from survivors. I merely assumed MeToo bots would allow for more justice for survivors, given its ability to canvas a wide area of information. Yet what Spencer is pushing is this very assumption. What does justice look like given these new tools? Yeah, because there's something to be said about like, what does justice look like for survivors? And this comes back to what I said earlier, right? The one of the main presumptions for these Me Too bots is we need more policing apparatuses if we have these sort of third party <laughs> uh, technology that's um, taking in reports or analyzing testimony and, and, and emails and documents, then perhaps, you know, survivors will get some kind of justice. And I think we want to challenge that given that sort of like carceral response to sexual violence has been tested for many years now and hasn't been effective. And so the question becomes, again, like, what does justice look like for survivors? What does empowering survivors look like in a context where there isn't transparency around how the data will be used and what the feedback loops there are for survivors to actually be an integral part of the process of designing um, and rolling out these bots? So given this assumption of neutrality in AIs and MeToo bots, I wanted to understand the intersection of race and gender within these new computational tools, especially given preliminary empirical work that highlights that these new tools harbor racial and gender biases. Yes, thank you for bringing this up. So certainly there's a lot more attention, I think, to bias in technology right now. One thing I think folks might want to check out is Data for Black Lives. There is a movement of folks who are contending with the ways in which various types of policing technologies, surveillance technologies limit <laughs> Black people's freedoms and rights, um, but also thinking about like what does just data look like for Black people? There's also been quite a bit of interest in like facial recognition technology and its limits. And so, for instance, there's this recent film called Coded Bias that comes out of uh, some work that Joy Bulawimi at the MIT Media Lab did to raise recognition around racialized bias and, and facial recognition technologies. And so, yeah, so there's like this movement, right? <laughs> like folks really contend with some of the various ways in which bias that already exist in our world can be replicated in the technologies that we 
recreate. And so one of the things that I do in the piece is really draw on work from Ruha Benjamin, who wrote a book called Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code, that really, really does a phenomenal job of overviewing how racialized bias in particular can be encoded in technologies in such a way that it's not a sort of glitch when technology is ill-equipped to recognize Black faces or Black skin, go to get soap from the soap dispenser, but rather it's part of the design. And so, yes, there's like this incredible movement of of folks who are thinking about this sort of ever-expanding digital arena for the ways it can replicate bias. Before we dive a little more deeply into the racial and gender biases that can be encoded within these tools, I wanted to hear about what could be said in defense of these Me Too bots. What was the initial pull for them in the first place? One of the things that folks are contending with is, well, how do we do a better job have a more fair process for evaluating survivors' claims of sexual harassment. And if we know that there are humans that have all of these different kinds of biases against queer survivors, against Black survivors, against poor survivors, then maybe it would be better to have a third party that can, you know, sort of quote unquote neutrally or objectively assess a survivor's claims. And so I think that's where the pool is coming from is that we really do want to do something about the fact that not all survivors are believed and taken seriously when they come forward. At the same time, as we discussed earlier, we have to recognize that humans are making these technologies uh, that we're not able to simply get outside human biases by creating me too bots, right? Like that we have to kind of do this ongoing evaluation of the technologies that we're building to ensure that we're at least minimizing the role that bias might be playing um, implicitly in the technologies that are created, whether that's in the actual design of the questions for the bot, whether that's in the data sets that people are using to actually test the bots for effectiveness. There are, I think, a couple of different ways to sort of look at where there might be bias in the actual process before we get to many years later going, oh, we didn't know that this bot um, wasn't doing a good job at recognizing same-sex harassment. You know, just as an example, like there's certainly need to think about different steps in the process of, of development. Let's recap. MeTooBot's creation stems from a desire to help increase our ability to accurately reduce sexual harassment and violence within our society. However, these MeTooBots run into some issues from their design. MeTooBots are designed by humans, which means that our very own biases can be and are encoded within them. Thus, the neutral arbiter we hope to create is merely fiction. Further, these biases diminish the ability of these technologies to achieve their aim, the aim to combat and reduce sexual harassment and violence. Biases around sexual harassment and violence encompass race and gender, and in order for these technologies to be more equitable and fair for all survivors, then these biases need to be discussed, tracked, and removed. Let's start with the first bias, the ideal survivor. And so in the context of sexual violence, we might think about bias in terms of questions or assumptions about a survivor's clothing. And this is a really popular one, you know, where people sort of ask, well, what were you wearing at the time of the harassment or assault? And the bias there is working on an assumption that, you know, quote unquote, real survivors, true survivors are those who 
you know, were properly dressed or, you know, sort of conservatively dressed, that you did nothing wrong to sort of warrant harassment. Um, And all of those are really, really problematic patriarchal mythologies about what a proper survivor, and typically we were thinking woman here, should be wearing to not welcome violence. And so obviously like a problem, we would call it bias (laughs) for assuming that a survivor did anything to ever warrant someone choosing to harass them. Given my particular focus on sexual violence, and again, as a Black feminist, I think a lot about how deeply entwined racism and and sexism and other systems of oppression are. And a really good example of this might be when folks sort of think about who is a survivor, we often think of a sort of damsel in distress. Sometimes People imagine this to be a race-neutral sort of description of of someone who's attacked or kind of plainly (laughs) imagine this to be a white survivor. And so one of the things that people might consider is what does it mean to think about sexual violence um, in terms of like one type of survivor? Something that's also come up very frequently is that many people think of survivors of sexual violence as only women. And so one of the things that people will need to consider who may not be familiar with racial and gender justice is the just sort of multiplicity of identities that a survivor might have because the reality is sexual violence can happen to anyone and does happen to anyone across racial lines, socioeconomic classes, across genders. And so I just want to sort of introduce that as um, one way of opening the floor for people who might think of sexual violence or survivors in a very sort of narrow or monolithic way that it's just women, or we're only sort of talking about this presumed innocent damsel in distress who's implicitly um, be someone racialized as white. With the myth of the ideal survivor disabused from our misconceptions about sexual assault and violence, let's now turn to Jim and Jane Code. So thinking back to the the book I mentioned by Ruha Benjamin, she's doing a lot of work around what she's calling Jim Code. And Jim Crow is typically referred to as, you know, various laws, policies, but also informal social and cultural norms that reinforce racial segregation in the United States. And so... Jim Code, very similarly, is this kind of racial bias and segregation in the digital sphere. So in what ways are technologies uh, re-encoding racial bias? In what ways are technologies not designed to fairly represent various racialized groups, especially Black groups? And as an example, many people might know about Sophia Noble's book on algorithmic oppression or discrimination, where you go to type in a Black person's name in this Google search bar, and it immediately is going to give you a bunch of links about possible criminal records, even though like that person might not have any of that. And, you know, there's been this huge campaign um, against that kind of racial discrimination online. So this is like less frequently a problem, but this is just sort of an example of the type of gym code that um, Ruhab Benjamin and others like Sophia Noble, right, are, are working on. And I introduce Jane code as a way of thinking through interlocking systems of oppression in the digital realm where bias is actually harder to track. 
Yeah, so with Jane Code, I'm really interested also in thinking about the ways in which racism and sexism, other forms of oppression are interlocking such that there are some forms of discrimination um, that might be outputs of Me Too bots that are sort of invisibilized. And that's sort of the history of Jane Crow as first articulated by Polly Murray. And so, for instance, I'm really concerned about the criminalization of survivors of sexual assault. And, and many people sort of know the story of of Centoya Brown, who survived a sex trafficking and then was criminalized, right? Like literally sent to prison for defending herself against, against a sex trafficker for many years. And thank goodness that Centoya Brown Long now is free, but there are many more survivors like her whose testimonies of self-defense are read as sort of just as bad or vigilante justice as the people who harmed them. And so I'm concerned, again, about how this data that various AI bots might be collecting could be used in the court of law against survivors who testify to defending themselves in the face of, of violence. And so that is something that is sort of a long term <laughs> potential impact of Me Too bots that as of right now, can be sort of invisibilized because it sort of seems like just a net good, but we're just going to get lots more um, data on sexual harassment. But again, the question becomes, well, what are we going to actually do with that data? What are the democratic processes by which people are making decisions about how to use that data? And what transparency exists to determine how that data gets used? Because at the end of the day, it's not that we actually have like a bird's eye view into the sexual harassment that might be happening or the sexual assault that someone experienced just because it's run through this third party AI, but rather it is its own mechanism of evaluation and data collection. And so indeed, if it is encoded with all kinds of biases, then the output that we're getting, the data we're actually getting from these technologies are also going to be tainted. And so we don't want to just then go, okay, well, we have this hardcore evidence against the survivor based on data we collected from their social media account. And this is enough to, to warrant their arrest and prosecution. And I bring this up in light of the story of Crystal Kaiser, who's currently facing a life sentence. She's currently out on bail, but she you know, was a teen survivor who defended herself against a sex trafficker. And the district attorney in Wisconsin is actually citing different Facebook posts in his prosecution of, of Kaiser. And so knowing that there's already this link between mining social media accounts for quote-unquote evidence against survivors who defend themselves, I'm concerned about the ways in which bots that are also analyzing social media might be used to sort of streamline that process. Given all that was discussed in the episode, my last question for Spencer was, what is the way forward for MeToo bots and computational tools in addressing sexual harassment and sexual violence? So I think that one of the things that folks maybe can consider here is to go back to why, why do it? If the goal is to support survivors, then we should start thinking beyond policing technologies and surveillance technologies. Let's think about using AI to analyze the number of rape crisis centers in someone's area. 
because we need bots that are able to, again, analyze a lot of data really quickly. And it'd be helpful to have a bot that can analyze just how far a, a crisis center is from someone's home. It would be helpful to sort of have a bot that's able to say that there are X number of hospitals in this particular city that are equipped in trauma-informed care. You know, things like that, I think, are really, really helpful for survivors and are also in line with where I think the sexual violence movement is going in terms of thinking through the fact that the problem is really a power imbalance between survivors and those who harm them. Most frequently, you know, we're talking about uh, relations of power between an employer and employees. So <laughs> we're thinking about like how survivors are disempowered in their workplaces. And we're thinking about students teacher relationships. So how students are disempowered in, in, in relationship to teachers and their education environments. So I think there are different ways to use computational approaches to address sexual violence that really help us think about what resources do survivors need in these different contexts versus leaning into how do we bolster policing apparatuses that again, we know fail survivors again and again, disproportionately harming survivors of color, Black survivors, and, and poor survivors by actually increasing police presence in our communities and increasing violence in, in our communities. For anyone who may be interested in exploring this discussion and topic further, I asked Spencer if she wanted to share any resources and organizations. These were her following recommendations. There's so many people doing phenomenal work on sexual violence, and there's no way that I can like name everyone, but I definitely want to encourage folks to research organizations like the Me Too Movement, Girls for Gender Equity in New York, the Firecracker Foundation in Michigan, Black Women's Blueprint. There's also this really incredible anthology by Aisha uh, Shahid Simmons called Love with Accountability. There are incredible organizations like Project Nia and Survived and Punished and Critical Resistance and Insight that I think, not think, I know, <laughs> are doing phenomenal work on sexual violence and, and how it is related to and deeply entwined with state violence and policing. And so these are you know, at least some organizations and, and one anthology to check out to learn more about sexual violence. Thank you for listening and taking the time to learn about Surviving Jane Code, Black Feminist Epistemological Concerns for Me Too Bots. We learn that Me Too Bots can actually be counterintuitive to the aims that they seek to accomplish and ways to reimagine these tools to better assist survivors. Dr. Allison McConwell about values and history, the meaning of life and chance in Stephen Jay Gould's Contingent Evolution. To be kept updated on our newest episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Philosophy in Color or Twitter at Philosophy Color. Thank you again to Dr. Spencer for sharing her research with us. Thank you to Jerome Romagoza and Natasha Hadol for production assistance. Our cover art was designed by John Benedicto. This episode was produced, hosted, and written by Daisy Underhill. I am signing off, and we will see you next time.